Hi, I'm Mark Lint, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we talk to Jillian Schwedler about her new book, Protesting Jordan, Geographies of Power and Dissent. We also talk to Dean Sharp about climate change in Kuwait and the Gulf. And we talk to Ali Kadivar about social policies under the Islamic Republic of Iran. Thanks for listening to our podcast. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book episode, we're joined by Jillian Schwedler of Hunter College, author of the new book, Protesting Jordan, Geographies of Power and Dissent, from Stanford University Press. Jillian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mark. I'm happy to be here. So it, it's it's wonderful to see this this sweeping panoramic book of Jordan, a country that uh, I've also studied for a long time. Fabulous book. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, thank you. Yeah, I've been working on this book for a long time. Um, I started it when I was just finishing up Faith and Moderation, and I had given a bunch of articles and books to a, a colleague of mine in Jordan, an interlocutor, uh, who had asked to read some stuff. And when I next spoke with him, I asked him what he thought, and he said that he really didn't recognize Jordanian politics and all this work that American political scientists were writing about. And it was kind of a devastating comment to me, but I really took it to heart. And so as I pushed forward working on this work on Jordan, I wanted to write a book that would be recognizable to activists and to people in Jordan, um, even if they disagreed with my arguments. And so that was part of the framework of what I wanted to do. And so I set about looking at protests uh, in Jordan across the whole landscape from tiny protests to large scale protests. And I start my story in the 19th century. So in some ways, it's really a retelling of the making of the state of Jordan, but from the perspective of people resisting it, trying to shape it, objecting to specific policies from the um, imperial period through the colonial state making project and up until the present. And so it, and you retell the entire story of state making and political order from the lens of the citizens who are making claims and uh, coming out into public and challenging the state rather than a lot of political science, as you say, often starts at the state level and the, the, the protest and the people are kind of on, you know, on the outside of that. So tell us about the methodology here and how you approach the question of politics in a case like Jordan. Well, I started, as, I, as you uh, rightly portray, I want to look at from the perspective of people resisting. And the case of Jordan in particular is told as this top-down state-making process. The Hashemites come in and with British support and largesse and, quite frankly, military power, impose itself on the region. And yet when you look back at the, the beautiful historiography um, by you know, historians over the decades, the story that comes through is actually quite different. It's one of uh, having to contend with all this local resistance. In fact, the resistance aren't these episodic once in a while um, moments of, of revolt or rebellion, but are near constant from the Ottoman period through the state-making process through the 20th century up until the present. Uh, and so I really wanted to look at how those protests, <clears throat> excuse me, affected the state-making process, how those acts of resistance um, had to be responded to um, through the state maintaining process. So not simply the large challenges like the you know, Black September and other instances, but rather the sort of routine resistance and the ways in which the state constantly has to respond to them. So they respond to them sometimes by co-optation, sometimes by payoffs, sometimes by uh, moving um, 
for example, the capital was established in Amman because Amman didn't have a strong local authority structure there. It was in Bani Sakhar land, but that wasn't the seat of Bani Sakhar power. So it, it discussed briefly um, settling in Salt, but there was so much resistance in Salt that they had to move the capital. So you even see the geography of the state is a result of ongoing resistance and pushback by locals living in the area. And so I really sort of trace that process through and put that process front and center, as opposed to the top-down imposition where periodic protests are simply crushed. So one of the big theoretical uh, contributions of the book and one that, uh, you know, that you've been developing for quite a while is this notion of, of routine protests. And some protests are huge and disruptive and transgressive, but hundreds of them a year are not. And um, so tell us a little bit about how you theorize what protest is and, and what role this is playing in politics. Okay, great. So my, my framework for what protest is, is a very large umbrella. So I include all acts of public claim making. So these can be large scale rebellions or major protests, but also a few dozen people in front of a ministry demanding something or a strike. So I'm looking at this large scale picture. And uh, as you mentioned, um, many people are surprised, even Jordanians are often surprised to learn that there's literally hundreds of protests a year for the past 30 years since protests were um, really allowed again after 1989. And so I started looking at a lot of these protests, not just the way a lot of the contentious politics literature does, which is to focus on who protests, where they, or how they protest, what they're protesting, but to add the spatial dimension where they're protesting. And so one of the things I found was there's certain locations that are common locations for protest that develop, if you will, their own spatial routine. So for example, in downtown Amman, which is the, the longest um, place for protest by the Grand Husseini Mosque, which used to be the city center, people congregate around the Husseini Mosque um, for 45 minutes to an hour, and they march uh, to the municipal complex about a half mile away. And there they have speeches and then they disperse. And so there's this really routine um, way in which people protest in that space. And as long as you adhere to that routine, for the most part, the government doesn't care. In fact, the government's quite happy to have protests down there because as the major financial institutions and government uh, buildings have moved out of the downtown area, downtown protests are disruptive of basically nothing. So those protests are fine. You can have thousands of people down there and they're very routine. Uh, and you see this in the way passersby walk by and look at the protests. And yes, the police will be there and the direct with the gendarmerie or riot police will be there, but nobody's running away from them. If you saw riot police lining up in say, for example, Damascus, you would get out of there very quickly because you'd be worried something would go wrong. And yet they're so routine in certain locations that the pedestrians aren't even, passersby aren't even the least bit concerned about them. The fourth circle, which is um, a traffic circle on Zahran Street where the prime office of the prime ministry is located, also has its own kind of routine, which is to gather in front of the circle. And over time, those routines have changed as the geography of that space has changed, but the government has now decided protests in those spaces are not to be permitted anymore. And they have fenced off the circle, they fenced off lots nearby the circle where people would gather. And when there's protests they anticipate will be there, they have uh, heavy um, armed artillery, armed machinery, armed vehicles, excuse me, and um, heavy troops to prevent people from gathering there. So you find these sort of really different spatial 
um, routines of both protesting and um, repression. And so how those work, the routine protests in particular, let's take the downtown protest. I argue that while they are protested and expressing dissent, because they're adhering to the routine that is not disruptive to the government, right, that they're happy to have it there, in a way it's reproducing the state's power by adhering to the patterns that the state finds acceptable. Whereas even smaller protests at the fourth circle are very disruptive and so the government is very insistent in trying to prevent those from materializing at all. You know, and to follow up on that, there's a really interesting uh, vignette in the book where you're talking about the protests, um, the very important protest in 2011 outside uh, the Diwana the, Dakhaliya, the, the, the interior ministry. Um, and uh, there you have real transgression, but also the mobilization of loyalists forces who are not interfered with. So let's talk about that in terms of uh, this inter interaction between public protest and state order. Okay, great. So that particular protest was um, the March 24th youth protest at the Interior Ministry Circle. Um, and it was a contentious protest for a couple kinds of reasons. One, that traffic circle wasn't a routine place for protest. And so when you're protesting in a new space, um, the government doesn't know what to expect. If you're protesting downtown or you're protesting at the Kaludi Mosque, there's a routine that's established and as long as you adhere to it, it's fine. Here's a new location. Plus it was an encampment. So people set up tents and intended to stay there. And in the midst of the Arab uprisings, that's a very contentious departure from routine, right? An ongoing protest in a new location in front of the Ministry of the Interior, which is also you know, symbolically very contentious. And so um, there was a very peaceful protest uh, there was a loyalty march that was organized initially at the King Hussein Gardens, where tens of thousands showed up um, of loyalists expressing their love of the king. And some numbers of those uh, showed up at the interior circle and camped opposite of the, the March 24th youth pro protest, which were not calling for the downfall of the regime, I should be clear. They were calling for reforms, and they were very careful to have the um, Jordanian flag, to not have uh, any Palestinian symbolism there, to not have any regime symbolism there. They were simply calling for reforms. So initially, the police keep these two camps apart, the sort of protesters and the loyalists, but overnight things begin to deteriorate. And by the morning, the loyalists uh, break through uh, into the camp and start beating the protesters to disperse them. What's telling and what's interesting about the uprisings is the uprising period is the first mass photographed revolutions that we've seen on the planet. And so you have all of these uh, videos and photographs that are uploaded to YouTube. And you can see very clearly from these uh, uh, videos, and I cite them, I give links in the, in the um, footnotes, you can see the police are coordinating and talking to these loyalist thugs. So they're clearly not simply been overwhelmed. They have in, in concert with these loyalists decided that this protest has to be cleared. And in fact, they work to clear them. Um, some of them are caught behind, behind fences and, and uh, one of the protesters is actually killed in that protest. Now there's a kind of a mythology around, uh, around the Arab uprisings along the lines of, you know, the, the, the monarchies were spared that, uh, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of protest in the monarchy because <laughs> they all survived and all of that. And your account of, of Jordan in that era doesn't really seem to reflect that. I agree. 
besides the case of Jordan, of course, you have the case of Bahrain, and that's a pretty huge case to say that there was no uprising in a monarchy. But in Jordan, you did have tens of thousands in the street. Um, the difference was you didn't have uh, coherence in terms of agreeing that the monarchy needed to go. You had some of the most contentious protests you had, and you had open criticism of the king, but many of the protests wanted, um, were in some sense uh, conservative in the sense that they wanted the monarchy to uh, reverse the privatization, expand the welfare state. People, particularly East Bank communities that felt this was entitled to them, wanted the regime to give them back these things that they felt were owed to them in exchange for loyalty to the regime. Um, now, it's not simply transactional. It was a sort of moral economy of this is our state and this is what is owed to us. Um, at the same time, over this period um, from 2000, January 7th, 2011, when the protests begin in Jordan, through the uh, Hebet Tishrin, the sort of uh, October and November protests in the end of 2012, which are anti-austerity protests, over this period, and I, I trace this very carefully in, in my book, um, you see a gradual increase of direct criticism of the king. So by the time we get to November 2012, you do in fact have people calling for the fall of the regime uh, using the, the slogan from the Arab uprisings um, in significant numbers. Now that, that protest eventually dispersed and people are arrested and there's a protest fatigue where it doesn't um, restart again as a massive scale. But that criticism continues through the 2010s up until today. And so I think the significant change, the challenge to the regime came not in revolutionary numbers immediately calling for the overthrow of the monarchy for democracy or for something else, but rather an emboldening of willingness to criticize the king directly. It's, a, it's illegal under several laws, as you know, to criticize the king at all, but to publicly criticize him, to post videos of you calling out the king, to Facebook, um, this really sort of uh, escalates in this period in a way that if you're not paying attention to what people are saying at protests, you might miss the degree to which that has changed. So it's, it's transgressive of some of the key red lines. Indeed. So you just mentioned right now a thread which runs through the book and one which is really important beyond protest per se, which is about this you know, kind of interesting dynamic of the relationship between the, the monarchy and its traditional East Bank constituency, which I think you show pretty convincingly is a lot more nuanced than that and, and has been affected by these neoliberalist uh, policies and uh, you know, the IMF mandated reforms and changes in state services and the like. So let's talk about this kind of aspect of Jordanian politics and where protest fits into that. Great, well, yes. Yeah, so first, um, as you mentioned, the sort of trope of the, the regime's loyal support base are East Bankers is on one hand true, but of course the East Bank community is widely divided and some of its sources of its biggest critics come from indeed these East Bank communities. And so if you look at the history, you've, you've as I said early in the state making process, these were the areas that were resisting and revolting against the establishment of the new um, monarchy um, in the 20th century. And they, very many of these communities, particularly places like Karak and An, they still talk about that as their legacy, that they're proud that they've always been willing to stand up to the monarchy. And so they invoke that as they continue to take to the streets. So you have in these communities, so Karak, you, for example, you can't simply say it's a loyalist or it's a resistance place because you have both coming from that community. You have the sort of very extreme loyalist 
you have strident backers of the regime, but you have a lot of opposition. And I think what we've seen in the past 20 years is a generational shift, not only in terms of age generation, but in the terms of um, uh, what are sometimes called the youth movements, which often include people in their 30s and early 40s, which of course I like that youth includes people in your 40s. But um, what you see is this sort of frustration, not just with the monarchy, but with their local elders. They're sort of sick of the system that they feel isn't helping them. They're not getting the jobs that they thought they were owed to them. They're not living the life that they should. Um, and many of them are living, frankly, in poverty, not just that they're not living a lush life, but they're really struggling to get by. And so you have that divide in these East Bank communities and increasingly uh, those frustration, particularly following the uprising period, they go very quickly to protest when they're angry about something, when they're angry about water, when they're angry about a particular project didn't give them enough jobs. The, the go-to response is to, to, is to protest. And that often entails uh, camping out in front of a government office, blocking a road, burning tires, these repertoires that go way back to the Ottoman period for resisting and getting demands. And I think what's often missed in studies of Jordanian politics is how much this can actually bring results. People go to protest because the regime responds to it. That does not mean that every protest achieves its goal, but there's a surprising uh, number of protests that do get positive responses whether it's water or jobs or very or a cell phone tower that you want in your area because your area doesn't have a cell phone tower, they actually get some response from this. So protests become this go-to um, technique, both from anti-regime groups and from pro-regime groups that are simply frustrated that the regime is not responding enough to them. Now, a lot of this comes under the, the label or the rubric <laughs> of, uh, of the Hirak, um, but there's a lot of different things going on there, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So the Harak, again, these are these uh, movements, they're often called youth movements, but again, you know, it's a broad uh, sense of what youth meant to sort of new generation movements is might be a better way to put it. Um, emerged across the region and many of them worked with protests and activists uh, in Amman. Some of them traveled to Amman to join protests. Um, and those groups have really continued in various forms over the, the past decade to express a wide range of grievances, often in localized senses, right in their, you know, in Divan or some of their local communities, but increasingly marching onto the capital. And I, I traced the ways in which in the early making period, uh, groups that were disgruntled with the new Hashemite regime would march to Amman to demand jobs. And in an ironic sense, this is what they've begun to do again. Uh, unemployed workers marches will march on foot to the capital to the royal court, not to the traditional protest spaces, but right to the royal court to say, we need jobs. And we don't just want a job. We want a job that has a pension and has health care and a decent wage. Uh, and so you find those uh, threads of those are often emerging out of the different Harak groups that have learned protest in these moments and have protest as a go-to technique. Now, one other uh, kind of theoretical theme which runs through the book, again, which makes it you know, so interesting is the way you weave in the urban design and the actual physical architecture and infrastructure of the city as kind of in dialogue, perhaps a way of saying in dialogue with these protest movements. So tell us like how Amman has changed and how protest has shaped that. Great. So one thing I alluded to earlier, which was that protests were always in the downtown area because that was the city center. So as the city has expanded over the decades and government offices moved, 
that's not the central symbolic space to sort of contest particular um, issues. So if you want to address the government, the government isn't based downtown anymore, but people will still protest there. So as a result of those being moved, the protest locations have moved. People protest in front of parliament. They protest at the fourth circle in front of the office of the prime ministry. They'll protest at the U.S. embassy. They'll protest near the Israeli embassy. So protests have sort of chased and followed those different symbolic locations. So that's fairly straightforward. I mentioned earlier, though, places like the fourth circle, as the government wants to shut down these spaces of protest, it has a range of techniques from putting up fences, putting up landscaping. This was also the fate besides the fourth circle by the prime ministry. This was the fate of the interior um, uh, circle where they had the camp out. That whole space is now landscaped and enclosed in fencing. So it's not a big open area anymore. Um, so you see the, the government trying to physically alter spaces to make them inhospitable for protesters um, to gather, make it un unable for large groups to gather. They'll create medians that uh, block off streets so you can't access protest sites easily. You have to walk you know, a kilometer to loop around a traffic circle. One of the most striking examples was is the Abdali Boulevard um, mega project uh, in Amman. It's supposed to be Amman's new downtown with all these high skyscrapers and a pedestrian mall. Um, underneath that uh, is an Abdali Mall. And on the 3D model for the project, the original project, above the Abdali Mall was supposed to be an open air plaza for gathering. And one of the um, managers of that project told Ilyan Abu Hamdi, who's researching uh, Amman, uh, told her that they that the plaza doesn't exist, basically. And he told her that the plaza does not exist because they decided they were concerned people would protest there. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me. So here you see a mega project being redesigned ex for the express purpose of preventing uh, uh, people from being able to protest in that space because they want that to be a cleansed space, not a space of political contention. They want it to be a cosmopolitan, neoliberal, gleaming, global kind of space. And so in all these kinds of ways, you see the urban design, the built environment responds to the fact that there's protests, not just in shutting down places where people protest, but in anticipating where they might protest and trying to prevent that. And so you see protests sort of written in the spaces of the city if you look for them in that kind of way. Now, in addition to the, the, the theoretical arguments that you're making and the story you're telling, there's also how you did the research. And tell us a little bit about the ethnography and the other types of research that went into the research and writing of this book. Okay, great. Yes. Yeah. So for the early chapters, I, weigh, I, I lean very heavily on uh, historians and their accounts, but also uh, memoirs and oral histories from people who would tell me what their father or grandfather talked about and remembered. And so a lot of that's woven into that. When I get into the, the bulk of the book, which is from uh, the 90s to the present, um, I rely on newspapers, accounts of protests, <clears throat> excuse me, as well as, you know, memories, et cetera. And so, you know, the usual semi-structured interviews, et cetera. But I add also ethnographies of protests themselves and uh, what I'm calling an ethnography of place, which is to think about not just what happens in the course of a protest, but how protest changes space and how it changes back. So I'll give a couple examples. One in the book, which I sort of alluded to earlier in the downtown area, when there's gonna be a big protest uh, planned for the downtown area, 
in the morning, you'll see the police start to show up and they'll have barricades that will show up. But everybody else is kind of milling about. Nobody's really concerned that there's going to be a protest there. And so I really try to describe the atmosphere, how people respond to it, if they avoid it, if there's any tension there, when there is tension, if there's tension, and how that sort of uh, increases or not during a protest, and then how people disperse afterwards. So I'm interested in the ethnography, not just of the protest itself, but of how it changes the neighborhood in which it's, or, or area in which it's being mounted and how it dissipates afterwards. So I'll often stay for two or three hours afterwards until the very last police vehicle is gone. Um, and I'll show up in the morning and really just spend a day if I know there's gonna be a protest there and try to describe that atmosphere. And I think that's important, particularly for the routine protests we discussed earlier, because it shows the ways in which certain protests, even at the height of them, when the riot police are blocking the street and the protesters are right up in the riot police face and chanting at them and calling them betraying the nation, you still have passerbys walking on the sidewalk and stopping to take photographs in, as, as if it's a curiosity uh, and moving on. And so I think that atmospheric aspect of it, the sort of like that affective climate is really important for understanding protests. And that gives us a counterpoint to when you have contentious protests, right? It's more easy to see deviations from routines and when things become contentious and how it's different when you have a really good handle on what the routine of protests, these hundreds of protests look like in a routine fashion. You do a really nice job of like the way you phrase it is you move beyond success and failure or the life cycle of movements, like the standard way that social movement theory often thinks about these things. And, and one, of the, one of the things which really stuck out for me was when you talked about how the protest can change the meaning of a space. So this becomes the place where this thing happened. And it's remembered that way by certain people. And so how, tell us about the politics of that and what, you know, how you would work that into an understanding of kind of the politics of meaning. Great. Yeah. So this is building on Aurel Lefebvre's work and a number of people in studying protests have looked at this. Um, but I'm very interested in the ways in which uh, protesters, well, not just protesters, people know that downtown is a place for protest. But it's also a place for, you know, low-end uh, sook market, you know, refurbished appliances, et cetera. So people are familiar with what those places mean. The fourth circle is understood very clearly as a place for protest. But often after this protest, you will have new billboards and banners with national symbolism, et cetera. And so you can see these spaces as contests over what's what the narrative is going to be so any evidence of protest the government wants to get rid of immediately um and we see this in places like tahrir a number of scholars have written about the ways in which tahrir was cleansed of all the art that sort of symbolized it or the ways in which the pearl roundabout was removed entirely because the pearl roundabout statue in bahrain became a symbol of of resistance and so you find uh these contests over national narrative and resistance born out in physical space and these contests over what the meaning of a space is going to be. And so the landscaping of the fourth circle and the interior circle with you know flags and trees that frankly don't usually do too well because they're surrounded by traffic. So these aren't actually good places for landscaping to thrive. Um, but there's places you're trying to, they're trying to erase the meaning that this is a contentious site, uh, particularly a place where someone was killed. And yet it ironically, there are places where you have dying trees uh, standing in dying dirt, you know, in despair. And so it's not really 
the narrative the regime wants of this sort of thriving, glowing, flourishing. Um, and so I, yeah, I find I, I really try to attend to the meaning making of specific spaces, um, not just in a broad sense, but downtown versus the Fourth Circle versus the Kaludi Mosque versus the interior circle and other places for protest. So one last question, um, you know, so beyond the just telling the story of Jordan, which you do extremely well, I think the book has bigger theoretical ambitions in terms of trying to contribute to a global literature on protest and contention. And so what do you hope that scholars of those types of political, those types of politics, what do you hope they take away from this book? What do you hope to add to the way we think about and study uh, kind of contentious politics? Great. Well, there's a, a small but growing group um, that I, I, I engage their literature that do look at um, protest in space. Um, there's a quite a significant literature on social movements in space and revolutions in space, but really want to bring this down to look at specific protests. So there's a couple things I hope that other scholars would take up. One is to look at the particular spatial routines of particular locations. So uh, Atif Saeed writes in a lovely article about Tahrir that after the Tahrir moment, besides just having the gathering, you actually had all these rallies from outside that moved into Tahrir. And that became a repertoire that they tried to reproduce, not quite successfully subsequently, but they tried to reproduce that. And so I'd like people to pay attention to these kinds of spatial routines, uh, whether they're successful or not, but rather than just saying, uh, as we have in data sets, X number of people protested. And even if it, we say we differentiate Tahrir to Alexandria, um, they protested very differently in those different places. So Yusuf El-Shesli, for example, is written about Alexandria, which didn't have a destination. The protest in Alexandria would basically march up and down the streets all day, break into different lines, come back together, reconvene, go other ways again. So a very different spatial routine because they didn't have that destination space. So I would like with people to pay attention to those kinds of issues. Second, in uh, data sets, uh, protest event data sets, we often you know, highlight numbers. I would like people to attend to the fact, for example, or ask the question of different uh, cases, like in Jordan, that several thousand people in downtown Amman is less contentious than two dozen people in an outlying area that seems disruptive of nothing. And yet the government will pour in the, the gendarmerie to tear down a tent that 10 people are sitting under. And they have these violent struggles to prevent them from putting up tents that basically nobody's seeing. So why is that? What is contentious about that? Uh, and so I'd like to you know, take a second look at the data sets that people are do doing data sets. If you add the spatial question, you attend to whether protests are actually adhering to a regime and thus non-transgressive or if they are transgressive. And I think we might see some interesting patterns and insights that we're not seeing simply by looking at numbers of, numbers of turnout at, at protests. So those are two areas that I, I really hope that others can take up. I'm also continuing to think about them, but one of the challenges of this kind of work is it takes a deep knowledge of the case to be aware of that. It takes watching protests routinely to know what is routine and what is a variation. So you can't just glean this information from newspaper articles and, and compile that data. You really need to have a familiarity with those spaces. So for people that know their, their case as well, I'll hope that they'll start to look at some of these kinds of issues because I think together we could build some exciting and new theories as we add more cases to this kind of approach. Fantastic. Well, Jillian, thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations on this outstanding book. Thank you.
the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's topical segment, we're joined by Dean Sharp of the London School of Economics. Uh, Dean, thank you so much for joining us. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. So you've been doing a lot of really interesting work on uh, climate change in the Gulf and more broadly. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the work you've done on Kuwait and on the Gulf in particular? Yes, so uh, last year I started a project um, on Kuwait and climate change and uh, published the report, The Quiet Emergency Experiences and Understandings of Climate Change in Kuwait. But really was trying to interrogate these headlines that of record-breaking temperatures in the country that, you know, the media reports very rarely actually got into the fabric of the society and really sought to engage Kuwaitis, um, both citizens and non-citizens, with how they experience and, and understand this phenomena. And indeed, there is a stark difference with the way that, uh, especially in the English language media, uh, Kuwait and climate change, and even perhaps the Gulf more broadly, is reported in often apocalyptic terms and, and quite sensational, with you know the muted conversation that is actually within these countries themselves. This is not to say that it's not a concern, but it certainly doesn't dominate um, political or social discourse in any really meaningful way. And, and indeed, that was the title of our report, giving it away, The Quiet Emergency, um, because it is obviously a serious concern, but isn't discussed in any meaningful way. For instance, just to take one tidbit from the report was we did an analysis of the parliamentary elections in Kuwait in 2020, and we found only one candidate um, out of over 300 even mentioned the word climate change. And indeed, that one case was in passing. Um, and even other parliamentary candidates and politicians that have been active on climate change or the environment deliberately didn't mention climate change because they felt constituents um, did not see this as a pressing issue or one that you know, would strike a chord with their campaign, basically. And yet, as you said, the actual uh, scope and scale of the challenge is, is quite acute uh, across the Gulf, but particularly in Kuwait. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, you have heat, of course, that gets widely reported, um, but there's also, uh, I should emphasize, a really solid scientific community in Kuwait publishing a lot of important work that is really outlining the challenges from rising temperatures of the sea that's causing uh, bleaching of chloral um, and rising temperatures that's causing mass fish kills. Uh, you've got increased instances of precipitation, um, of flooding, and because uh, often the built environment and the infrastructural networks in Kuwait are not built to withstand this sort of precipitation, you're having large-scale damage and, and in some cases even death. Uh, in our um, interviews, dust storms and, and the problem of dust was mentioned almost as frequently as heat. Um, you know, and this is again related a lot to building standards where buildings are being poorly constructed uh, and indeed the proliferation of ACs has often meant that buildings uh, have gaps in which dust can get in um, and so of course this is also driving a public health emergency. With heat of course you have increased instances of heat stroke, with dust you're getting uh, breathing problems, uh, asthma, increased instances of asthma um, and uh, other other public health um, uh, problems that I think is elevating to a situation that you could describe it as a public health emergency. Um, now, so 
this is across the Gulf uh, happening in, in various ways and hitting the different countries in different ways. Uh, for another project that you've done, uh, you wrote a short paper for us uh, coming out soon. Um, you've been looking at how this particularly intersects with uh, the urban environment and uh, what you're calling uh, climate urbanism. Tell us about that and why it matters in this context. Climate urbanism is uh, a subfield now, I think, of urban studies that's really grown apart for the past 20 years. And the Arab world has been conspicuously absent. And so this short paper was really my effort to put the Arab world and Arab urbanism into dialogue with this growing field of, of climate urbanism. Um, for those that aren't familiar, climate urbanism is really locating itself around key concepts like um, the zero carbon city or low carbon um, efforts. Uh, this goes to transitions uh, around, of course, electric vehicles to uh, investments in public transport, um, you know, trying to do large scale investments that shift our carbon intensive urbanization process of uh, the last hundred years to one that is uh, decarbonized and more in tune and, and trying to, and, and will be critical to achieve uh, 1.5 degrees and you know the Paris Climate uh, Accords and, and even more recent agreements around COP, which of course are becoming increasingly more unlikely that we're going to achieve. But it is broadly agreed that the city and the urbanization process more broadly is at the heart of efforts to decarbonize and lower greenhouse gas emissions. And this is where then climate urbanism really comes into play and, and this focus on our urban systems. Um, and there is in this article, I, I hope, as well as the um, doom and gloom of which there is a lot to share. Um, you know, I think a lot of the large scale mega projects like Nyom or Mazda City that are probably at the forefront of efforts to frame climate urbanism, if you like, or, or zero carbon and low carbon initiatives that are hard to take seriously in that frame, at least, um, and also around building standards. I mean, these are all urban projects that are hugely carbon intensive, uh, if not directly, then certainly indirectly, um, that ignore a lot of the kind of basic urban principles around sustainability, urban justice, and even, quite frankly, from a personal view, aesthetic um, principles. But um, as I say, the paper I did was also to, to look for um, some, some glimmers of hope. Um, and there are some. Saudi Arabia, for instance, has invested in the billions. I'm always a bit skeptical to share exact figures because uh, they are, uh, uh, the accuracy is dubious. But there is in the billions, certainly, of a uh, transport network that is not planned, that is due to open this year, um, is there materially. Um, and it's, uh, there are, uh, exist now um, transportation, public transportation schemes across all major cities in Saudi Arabia. That is something to celebrate and uh, kind of be positive about. Um, and this is a significant amount of capital that is being invested in a system that is uh, not only directed where, um, in a positive way around carbon emissions, but also in terms of developing the sorts of uh, cities and urban fabrics that uh, I think we should aspire to. And equally, 
um, across, this is not just something that's happening in Saudi Arabia, but there is a renewed focus from Egypt to the Gulf countries uh, and yeah, across the region more broadly in which there's an emphasis uh, around public transport. Equally, um, building standards are also starting. I, I, I don't want to overstate the case, but they are starting to be taken more seriously. Abu Dhabi has released a, a pearl rating system that is really starting to more seriously look within and not just take, for instance, LEED and BREEAM, which are the American and British uh, building standards and just, you know, uh, copy and paste them, but to, to develop context specific uh, building standards that do take account of things like insulation, um, the quality of materials and indeed their carbon emissions. And, you know, there is a slow proliferation throughout the region, again, not just contained to the Gulf, but the region more broadly uh, around building standards. And that really is going to be critical and, and equally to, to public health measures. In the work that we've done in Kuwait, again and again, it was mentioned how the poor building um, standards uh, are resulting in, you know, dust getting in that is actually, again, like causing major health problems. It's not to, to kind of uh, brush these off as uh, small problems and certainly i'm speaking to you from khartoum i can tell you that the dust is everywhere and building and we have the ability to build in a way that is uh, seals and protects the internal inhabitants from from the elements um but all too often and again i see in, even in khartoum we are uh, putting up glass and steel buildings and, and greenhouses in uh, a way that one could only describe as, as insanity for both the uh, emissions that it produces and the sorts of conducive environments that you would want in such a company. Now, it's really interesting, you know, contrasting the kind of very practical interventions within existing cities and within existing um, buildings and the like versus these mega projects that get them headlines, the, as you said, Mastar City and Naom. And what role do those play uh, in in this overall context that you're describing, because they certainly have received a lot of publicity and they're always highlighted by those governments as kind of the symbols of this moving towards a carbon zero uh, world and that sort of thing. So where do they fit? Absolutely. I mean, I'm going to be a bit more positive than, than perhaps the situation warrants, but you, the, the standard approach up to now is absolutely to do these mega urban projects like Mazdanyo uh, very clearly for crude propaganda regions that have little to no substance in relation to anything that we could describe as green, zero or low carbon. Um, the, the, the positive element that I want to maybe push to the forefront is that building standards which you know are a bit more serious, they are a bit more low-key, are also now getting incorporated into a prestige uh, kind of thing to have, you know, that your, your building should be, uh, you know, to the highest international standards in relation to insulation, to recycling water, um, you know, uh, ventilation and these types of issues. Um, it, it is, at, as I say, at the moment, um, uh, very much confined to um, to a small cluster that is mainly elite-style buildings. But right. Abu Dhabi, again, is showing signs that they're going to insist that all government buildings, for instance, have a certain minimum requirement on their building standards. That 
could be significant. And so it's hoped that, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but that, that, that a kind of trickle-down effect does happen. I, I, I'm not very hopeful of that, but there, there is a shift going on. We should recognise it. And before swiping it away as meaningless, maybe interrogate it a bit more, try and uh, encourage these sorts of things as well. Like, they are very, very important. Um, and they could have uh, pr profound changes in, in reducing what are currently skyrocketing greenhouse gas emissions within the Arab region. And one of the things which is you know, very difficult, I think, for to go back to where you began, the difficult for politicians or for the public to grapple with on climate change is just the sheer magnitude of it and the, the, the wide scale range of ways in which it affects every part of life. It makes it hard to focus in on a single thing and the seeming impossibility of, of places like, uh, like the UAE or Saudi Arabia or Qatar to move from where they are with the, the air conditioning and the, the urban environment they've built to the sort of thing that might be seen as environmentally sustainable. It just seems almost uh, staggering in terms of what that might actually entail. How do the people within your communities that you studied there, how do they think about this in terms of practical interventions? Um, I mean, firstly, from the interviews we've done in Kuwait, this idea of, of being overwhelmed by the task comes across uh, frequently. Um, you know, that this is the, the, the climate, you know, it's, it's something to do with weather and, uh, you know, uh, out of human control is something that's frequently mentioned and, and referenced. Um, and um, the, it, it should be made clear, though, that the IPCC and that many of the reports that are, are coming out from the UN do want to stress that human action can mitigate um, climate change um, and greenhouse gas emissions, um, that the window has not closed as of yet, but it is rapidly closing, and that window to make an impact is uh, shortening um, as we proceed. And of course, for the Arab region, you know, greenhouse gas emissions have skyrocketed over the past decade. So there is a, a lot to be done. Um, and, you know, just from a broader perspective and where the Gulf Narrow region want to situate themselves and thinking about that horizon, that there, there is some recognition within Kuwait and it's increasing that uh, Western countries and China um, are stopping the production of petrol cars, okay, some, at different time lengths, but that that will have a major impact on them and that, that they do need to uh, start thinking and investing seriously in um, alternative circuits of capital that aren't carbon intensive. Um, so on the one hand, yes, there is a clear apathy and signaling that this is not within human capacity and, and you know, framing it how you uh, like in terms of those mega kind of scales. But on the other hand, there is a clear realization that if they don't make the necessary economic, political, and social shifts, that there will be uh, even more serious implications and that there is a capacity to do something, um, at least. How well-intentioned that is uh, and if, how much it's got to do with carbon rather than to do with, for instance, economic diversification is perhaps a, another debate. 
Well, great. Thank you so much, Dean, uh, for joining us and talking about this important topic. All right. Thanks so much for having me. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and we're talking now to Ali Kadivar of Boston College, author of a new article, Social Development Revolution in Iran. Ali, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mark, for having me. So tell us a little bit about this article and where it fits into your research. So um, I just finished my previous book, or which is my first book, it's coming in November. It's about protest movements and democracy. In my next project, new project, I look at Iranian revolution and the Iran-Iraq war that happened right after I look at how mobilization patterns changed through the revolution and how it was affected and it affected developmental outcomes, both at national and subnational level. So this article is the first piece of this broader project that I'm still in the process of data collection for. So tell us a little bit, a little bit about what's in the article then. Sure. This, so the article compares developmental trends in Iran for before and after the revolution. And one of the basic goals of the article is just to set the facts straight, to see how, for example, literacy or number of hospital beds and doctors, how they were before the revolution, how they were after, and whether we see observable changes in, in terms of these trends. And this is related both to scholarly debates that have happened over the outcome of revolutions and the discourse that the leaders of the Iranian revolution and uh, officials of Islamic Republic have had. Scholars of revolution, majorly Fide Scotchpool, they have claimed that social revolutions boost the capacity, state capacity, and they help developmental uh, projects of the state. So states with post-revolutionary states are stronger in terms of developmental projects. Officials of the Islamic Republic also from the beginning, they made big promises to the population. There is one uh, speech of Ayatollah Khomeini that is still being remembered by Iranians in which uh, he said, don't be just happy that we would improve spirituality in, in your life. We are going to give you free housing, free, free uh, water and free electricity. So now when some poor Iranians, they steal electricity, they call it imam's electricity because they say that this was promised to us, but was never delivered. So I, against that discourse and against the scholarly literature, I look at the changes in developmental patterns before and after the revolution. And it's important that these are social revolutions, which, uh, which are making promises uh, about social justice, redistribution, um, and fundamental changes in kind of class and societal relations. Indeed, social justice was very important in the discourse of the Iranian revolution. And there's one interesting fact I found out when I was uh, preparing this article. So Iran had seven years developmental plans before the revolution and then five years developmental plans after the revolution. Uh, they only changed the name. The name before the revolution was Omran, which is also Arabic. They changed it to Tose after. So it's continuity, but the change of words. One thing was very interesting. Before the revolution, there was not a single time that the word justice was mentioned in the plans. And then justice is all over the five years developmental patterns. But has this mattered for the real outcome? So that is one of the like motivations behind uh, writing this article. So you look at this then across a whole range of indicators, uh, things which yeah. might be taken as indexes for development, uh, literacy yeah. and uh, 
uh, uh, life expectancy, infant mortality. So walk us through some of these. What does the data say? So for, I mean, overall, I don't find one consistent story that can summarize all of the data. We find contradictions in terms of outcomes. In some outcomes, we find continuity before and after. For example, female life expectancy or um, infant mortality. Infant mortality has been declining before and after the revolution. Life, female life expectancy has been improving before and after the revolution. So this is continuity. For these indicators that have continuity, what I did, I looked at the pace of the change. So in each year, how much has been added to female life expectancy or uh, how much it's been uh, reduced from infant mortality. What I found here, which was interesting, was that the pace of the change was positive before the revolution and then for these two indicators. And then the pace becomes negative. So female life expectancy keeps increasing after the revolution, but with a smaller and a smaller uh, part. So we see that revolution turn, uh, appears as a turning point, that the pace of the change changes. For some other indicators like male life expectancy, and this is the World Bank data, we observe a decline during 1980s, which I think is related to Iran-Iraq, yeah. casualties of Iran-Iraq war. Um, there are other indicators that we observe decline. For example, the ratio of hospital beds to the population, we have declined. The number of doctors declines after the revolution and the ratio of doctors to population, which is more important, declines even further. For these two important health uh, indicators, it takes about 30 years for country to catch up with the ratio of 1979. Uh, in housing also in terms of the number of households that own a house, this declines after the revolution and it's been declining until today. In some indicators, we have had improvement and even the improvements have been larger than before. For example, in terms of uh, female literacy and rural literacy, the gains that have been achieved after the revolution have been bigger than the gains before the revolution. But before revolution, we have also, uh, we see these numbers going up. So in urban, rural, male and female, it's been going up. In terms of urban literacy and male literacy, the, the progresses are on par. Um, so I look at some number of indicators, as you said, I look at various health indicators. I look at poverty, income inequality, and uh, housing, as I said. There are other, as I mentioned, poverty and income inequality are important. In terms of poverty, the absolute poverty, there has been decrease after the revolution. But there's been decrease before the revolution. And what is, I think, very important is that these have happened during the time that the price of oil has increased, which is a major drivers of Iranian economy. So GDP per capita has increased and uh, Poverty, absolute poverty has declined. It is still an important achievement, but it is important to mention that there has been a major driver which has been external to the state, but it is important that the state has been able to channel money. In terms of income inequality, it has decreased after the revolution. And I have a separate paper with an economist, Mohammad Zafazanagan, in which we use causal identification methods. This has certainly been the effect of war and revolution. But when you look at the studies related to the, uh, to the mechanisms, it becomes clear that it has not been through the redistribution. This is mostly the result of how the damage that war and revolution have done to the top of the 
uh, high income earners and people with wealth. So a lot of wealthy Iranians escaped the country and large part of them are residing in, in Los Angeles. You can see them in Shaws of Sunset. And so the number of doctors that I mentioned declining doctors are high skilled labor. So these people either become inactive or, uh, or exit the labor force. As a result of that, uh, we have a decline in, le in level of income inequality. But this is only until after the war. What has happened after uh, 1980s, there are three different indicators of income inequality in Iran. One shows decline, one shows a stagnation, one shows increase. So it becomes hard to identify what's happened from 1990s uh, onward. But this is a short summary to show that um, there is contradiction, there are declines in some areas, some areas that there has been uh, continuity with, uh, with better pace of change and some areas continuity with slower pace of change. So this has implications for, as you said, you know, theories of social revolution and, uh, you know, the arguments about how revolution shapes the state. It also has implications, as you point out at the end of the article, uh, for right up to the present day in terms of some of the holes in state capacity, which are revealed. Um, and I, I was quite I was fascinated by your discussion of the Iranian response to COVID-19. Yeah, so one of the mechanisms that has been discussed contributing to developmental outcome is the parallel institutions that uh, were established after the revolution. Um, so revolutionaries had two things. First, there were a lot of hiring and firing in pre-revolutionary institutions because they thought those people were loyal to the monarchy. They, they didn't share the Islamist ideology. So a lot of purges happened in those institutions. But there was still uh, pessimism or skepticism about those institutions. So they established new institutions. So you have the conventional military in Iran, then you have revolutionary guards. Uh, Jihad Sazandegi, which is uh, construction jihad, for example, as an organization that was built after the revolution for rural development and things like that. So the question is that what is the effect of this type of institution in, uh, in developmental outcome? And the COVID response is an important example we can look at. So initially the government said that they are developing a number of vaccines. So some just in Iran, some in collaboration with Cuba and some where uh, Sputnik was supposed to produce some in Iran. So one of these vaccines, Barakat, was uh, underway with one of the one of these parallel institutions, which is under the, the Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei. This is Setad Farman Ejrei Hazrat Imam. It's uh, it's one of these foundation that has been appropriating land or property that they believe belong to the elements of the previous regime, and then they have been spending in, in things that they say is for charity or for development or other purposes, but they do a lot of economic activities. So this, uh, this organization, because they had connection with the leader, they, they were favorites. So uh, other institutions uh, made things harder for other vaccines in terms of permission, trial, and so on, and facilitated it for this one. And the head of this, um, this institution, Mohammad Mokhbarad, he made promises at different periods in time that, that they're going to give 2 million, 3 million doses, 6 million doses, 12 million doses. Now, none of those were achieved. The other vaccines, they didn't uh, lead to mass production. 
and the import was postponed uh, for I think two reasons at least. One was that we wanted to develop this one and sell it in domestic market. The other one that was that Rohani was in power at that time and they didn't want moderates to import vaccines and take the credit for uh, the COVID response. And this institution actually did receive a large sum of money for their vaccine that they didn't deliver on time. They didn't deliver enough of them. Now it's in the market, but the main that they had to import. When RIC became president, they changed the policy because they postponed the vaccine. Uh, there were tens of people that died because vaccination. Now the ratio is good in Iran. But we know the timing is very important in, in how governments responded to COVID. And Iranian government, they were late in terms of bringing either their own vaccine or importing uh, vaccines. So then there was a policy change from developing the domestic vaccines to uh, importing. This did happen. That institution still received the money. And as I, I mentioned what happened to the head of the institution, you would expect this guy to be criticized or blamed or be demoted. Well, he's vice president now. So they made some money, people died, and he's got promoted to vice president. I think it's an example that shows how these parallel institutions, the lack of accountability, the lack of coordination between them, how it affects uh, important developmental outcome, in this case, a health issue uh, as a result of the response to COVID. It was quite striking when you mentioned that uh, the actual death rate might be twice the official, yeah. officially reported rates. Yes, the, I think the official uh, it was when I mentioned in the article, I, 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 la I wrote the last version in September, which had over 200,000. The death toll from Iran Iraq war is uh, there were uh, there were discrepancies over this, but now we know the accurate number of the death toll from Iran Iraq war is over 180,000. And the COVID death toll is certainly the official death toll was around. 100 something at that time, twice of that, according to the officials. They said this is the official number, but we are underestimating the actual number is twice. So it has certainly passed the death toll of the Iran-Iraq war, yeah. Now, one last question. This, this is beyond the scope of the paper uh, itself, but it would seem that uh, the, the array of international sanctions uh, on Iran um, must encourage this kind of the growth of these para-state or uh, parallel institutions in kind of interesting ways. I mean, the more Iran is isolated, I think we, we have more corruption. They justify their rationale. And there are certainly elements within the hardline elements within the Iranian government that favor Iran to be under sanctions. They don't hide this. They say that uh, sanctions are good for Iranian development. It would make us independent. It would make us to work harder. This is what Iran's Supreme, Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei has uh, said on the record. So it, I think it's beneficial both for American domestic politics and for Iranian domestic politics. Certain factions have been uh, benefiting from this and that's one major reason we are still stuck. I mean, it's certainly part of an unequal, unjust world system in which a superpower is punishing a less powerful state because it's not uh, abiding by what the United States dictates, but that's in the international politics. But as we know, domestic politics uh, very important as, as well as in this case. It's a really interesting article. I'm looking forward to seeing what you do with the book. Uh, Ali, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, uh, Mark, for having me.